You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Distinctive disciples. That's what Jesus says we should be. But how? It's become a bit of a Christian trope to say that uh, we should be the people that others look at and say, hey, there's, there's something distinct about you, something different about you. But what do we mean when we say that? Exactly what is different about us? Because you can be distinctive in different ways. Doomsday preppers are distinctive. The Amish are distinctive. But that doesn't mean that they're people that others want to be like. Jesus' disciples are distinct, as he says in this passage, because they are salt, because they are light, and because they live righteously. Salt, light, righteousness. We're going to consider our passage this morning under two headings. One, let your salty light shine. And two, let your righteousness shine. Those, I just needed to put them together because they go together. So let's begin with our first in thinking about how we are to be distinctive disciples. One, let your salty light shine. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus begins this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we started last week uh, with the Beatitudes, with two very ready and relatable images. And not just in the ancient world, but also today. We still use salt. Kids, how many of you like salt on your food? Yeah, just, yeah, and just don't have too much, okay? My eldest daughter loves, in particular, loves salt. She will happily eat salt on its own. In 2021, the world produced 290 million metric tons of salt. Does anybody know how many elephants worth that is? It's roughly over 41 million elephants worth of salt was produced in the world in 2021. And every year, pretty much. So, but why salt? Why salt of all things does Jesus choose? Well, there's the obvious role of salt being a flavoring. We like it because it's nice. That's the main reason we would still have salt around today. 
And perhaps you've heard that in the past, salt was also commonly used to preserve food. But in the ancient world, it also had a number of other uses. Salt was used as a purifying or a cleansing agent. Perhaps for this reason, it was also uh, sometimes an addition to ritual sacrifices. Salt was even used to brighten lamps or to, or to make land useless. The salt was a versatile and virtually essential subject to have. Sorry, subject, substance to have. And Jesus doesn't tell us here in what sense his disciples are to be the salt of the earth. And I think Jesus doesn't specify because his point is not about what aspect of salt we should be like, whether we should be flavorsome or preserving But he is highlighting the simple fact that salt adds something to life that is noticeable, that is distinct, and that is ultimately good. That's why what he says next is such a serious warning. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt technically can't lose its saltiness. You know, sodium chloride just doesn't do that. But the way that it was produced in Jesus' day meant that it sometimes could be so diluted that the finished product wasn't salty. But you know, even if that's not what Jesus was referring to, his point is that if, it, uh, if salt did lose its saltiness, then it loses the very thing that makes it salt. It becomes useless. It would be the same as having coffee without coffee beans, or Darwin without bogans, or Australians without jokes that make fun of ourselves. Without saltiness, it is not salt. Which is why if it's gone, then it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. Now this is a serious warning. And perhaps for you... I'm sure for many, all it does is strike fear in their hearts. How do I know if I've still got my saltiness? How do I know that I won't receive God's judgment because I'm not salty enough? Well, if that's you, hold on to that question. We'll get to it by the end. And Jesus has another image that he wants to convey. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Notice how both of these statements are facts. Jesus doesn't say, be the light of the world or be salt. No, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill probably doesn't conjure up the same kind of image for us today as it would have to Jesus' original hearers. Our cities today are so large and most of the time we see them as we're actually coming in from above in a plane. But if you can imagine a time, a couple of thousand years ago, when things weren't like that, and you either walked or you rode a camel or some other beast of burden to get to a city, imagine the sight of a city with its walls and its buildings rising above the landscape and looking down upon everything else around it. You'd be able to see it from miles away, and the message that it would be broadcasting to the world would be loud and clear. This is a great city. Now, Jerusalem was such a city. That's why some of the Psalms are called Psalms of Ascent. They went up to Jerusalem. 
So it's pretty remarkable that Jesus would now refer to his disciples rather than the people of Israel as the city on a hill. Now remember, just last chapter, Matthew told us that Jesus himself is the great light that Isaiah prophesied would dawn on a people dwelling in the darkness. And now, Jesus here says that his disciples are the light. Now, mind you, not in the same sense that he is. He is, after all, fully God and fully man, something that none of us are. But as his disciples, in a sense, as he says, we are the light of the world. His light shines through us. And of course, nobody shines a light just to cover it. In the same way that salt without saltiness is useless, so a light, if it is covered, is useless. There's a reason that we install lights in the ceiling. They're free from obstructions there, and they're able to give light to the entire room. Now, if it's dark and a light goes on, then there is no way that you can mistake the presence of that light. You can't suddenly pretend that you can't see anything. Oh, no, there's no light. It's very obvious. Even if you choose to shut your eyes as your last line of defense against it. But you can't ignore the fact that it is there. There is no way. And so in the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That light shines in such a way that it cannot be mistaken. It cannot be ignored. How are Jesus' disciples distinctive? Well, this is, this is pretty straightforward, isn't it? As we see in this verse, let your light shine that they may see your good works. And putting this together with Jesus' comment that salt that has lost its saltiness will be trampled, it actually makes Jesus sound a lot like a legalist. You know, that is, someone who says, okay, unless you pass a certain bar of saltiness, unless you're putting out a thousand lumens worth of good works, then you're not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's effectively legalism. Is Jesus teaching legalism? That a person enters the kingdom of heaven by their good works? On the contrary, I think even the way Jesus has even phrased these points points in the, the other direction. You are salt, he says. You are light. So go and be what you already are in the world and let your good works shine. But we must also understand Jesus' comments in light of the rest of Scripture and indeed what he's going to say in the next section. You see, this is one of the key distinctions between Jesus' disciples and that of any other religious teacher or guru. We don't do good works in order to earn favor or right standing with God. We do them because Christ has already won that for us. That is the essence of the gospel. And the ditches on either side are just as much of a uh, hazard for Christians as they are for anybody else. You can stray on one side towards legalism, or you can stray on the other side towards cheap grace. 
Do you have a tendency towards legalism? Legalism looks like a haughtiness or a boasting in your ability to do good. You expect to beam with pride as God says to you on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant, as he examines all the badges of honor that you've earned in his service throughout your life. Or it also actually looks like despairing and feeling hopeless because all you ever see are the ways that you fail in meeting God's standards. With every sin, with every slip up, you feel the weight of the guilt of your iniquity and you reject God's grace because you think, no, I haven't earned it yet. Or it looks like never really settling into either of those. You know, you've done enough good works to look down on others and to think you're pretty good, but not enough to feel like, actually, I still haven't done enough. You're in legalism purgatory. Either way, viewing your relationship with God this way, it gets rid of grace. You might as well sing, amazing me, or Lord from sorrows deep, I will remain. John Piper puts it like this. Legalism is used rightly, I think biblically, if we say it is an attitude, a spirit, a disposition of all kinds of behaviors and feelings that are rooted in a failure to be amazed that I am saved by grace. A failure to be amazed that I am accepted by God freely. To be melted, broken, humbled, and filled with joy because of what God has done. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you struggle in this direction, spend some time soaking in the gospel. Humble yourself before the Lord. Pray with brothers and sisters who will constantly remind you of it and to encourage you to anchor your soul in His grace. On the other side, do you have more of a tendency to trumpet cheap grace? This commonly looks like a relaxed approach, perhaps even an indifference towards righteous living and obeying God's commands. It may even look like a self-congratulating pat on the back for not being as legalistic as those who just get so obsessed with obedience. It casts a suspicious eye over any Christian brother or sister who lives a life that seeks increasing and greater obedience to God's law and is very quick to grasp for an excuse to God's sinful tendencies in the name of Christian freedom. Cheap grace forgets that God's grace doesn't leave us where we were when grace found us. Cheap grace finds it difficult to say with the well-known abolitionist John Newton, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. If that is you, then there is much to be said even more in the rest of this passage. Both these responses miss the gospel 
And both find it difficult to make sense of Jesus' teaching. So how should we understand Jesus' instruction in verse 16? How do we understand that we are the light of the world and and our good works are what are seen by others? Well, the first thing to say is that it is true. The trope is true. We do, as Christ's disciples, as salt and light of the world, want people to look at our lives and to say, there is something distinct about you. More often than not, the world recognizes its need for light. How many of you have seen the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Don't watch the other one. It's not worth it. Do you remember what Willy Wonka says at the end of the movie when Charlie hands him back the gobstopper? He puts his hand over it and he says, So shines a good deed in a weary world. As Christians, we want to take that opportunity to share with them what Christ has done for us, that they might enjoy the same salvation that we've experienced. We want to be able to give the reason why we are not the same, why we have changed. And it does harm to the message of the gospel when a Christian's life does not match the message that they are proclaiming. As one theologian put it, the good word without the good walk is of no avail. It is useless. Nothing kills evangelism like hypocrisy. And that goes for both excesses. The world looks at the legalist and thinks, well, you're just as trapped in the world of of self-salvation as I am. Why should I swap my pantheon of gods or my lack of God for your God? It's the same thing. You've just got to earn and do good works in order to be able to get, get over the bar. And the world looks at the cheap grace Christians and thinks, well, your Instagram feed looks just like mine. The things you love, the things you spend your time on, the way you spend your money, it's all just the same. The only difference is that you have a cross in your bio and one around your neck. Brothers and sisters, as we step away from these and as we step towards Christ in the gospel, our good works and our light really begin to shine. Christ says that our good works will be seen by others and result in them giving glory to our Father in heaven. Which can mean either coming to faith or simply giving glory to God. And when Peter, when Peter uses it in his letter later on, 1 Peter 2.12, he is certainly referring to conversion. The world looks and sees how Christ has transformed our lives. And they see something distinct. These are things we know to be true, don't we? How many people do we know or have at least heard stories about who came to faith in Christ because of the kindness of Christians? How many people have been convicted of their sin and turned to Christ as a result of seeing the chronically angry, the lazy, the gossips, the liars, the womanizers, the money-obsessed become completely changed? How many times has the Lord used all the little ways in which we seek to shine his light along the way to bring people to himself? A kind word. Taking time to speak to and befriend the person that nobody else does. 
Not looking down upon others, but instead offering the hope and mercy of Christ, recognizing that we are in just as desperate need for him as they are. Let your light shine. And church, may this be something that we don't just do individually, but together. Jesus uses the word you in this passage And as is always the case, we don't have a plural word for you, at least not one that you can put in print. And Jesus says, use, you guys, you are the light of the world. Not only do our individual works shine, but also our works together. One of the simplest and easiest ways you can show this is by loving your church in a way that goes beyond what is comfortable and expected by everybody else. We are, after all, a group of people brought together, not because we all naturally get along or because we don't have any conflict with, any, with each other. No, we are a church because we love the God who saved us and brought us together. We are committed to the Savior who told us that all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. You see the distinctiveness in what Jesus says there? The kind of love that Jesus' disciples have for each other, the kind of love that members of the church have for one another, exceeds and goes beyond the kind of love that is natural to the rest of the world. It goes beyond kinship theory, evolutionary selfishness that has resulted in us protecting our own interests by actually looking after other people. It goes beyond that. If you want some inspiration from our church, then consider Dee Dee. She's away, so I'm allowed to talk about her. No, I did check with her. I did check with her. It always amazes me the variety of members of our church who aren't the same age or who don't have the same interests or don't have the same background or are not at the same stage of life who have spent time with her and been encouraged by her. She crosses demographic lines to love and to serve and to build up the members of the church. That's what the church is supposed to be. People who otherwise would not have chosen to invest their time and their energy into each other. We do so because of Christ. Does that characterize us? Because that's the kind of thing that will shine like a city on a hill. That's when the world will know we are not just a club of Christians who are doing this church thing for our individual benefit. Brothers and sisters, shine brightly. Shine boldly. Let your light shine that they might glorify God. And may we do it as ones who are in Christ, which brings us to our next section. Shine your righteousness. Let's read verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Kids, let me ask you a question based on this verse. Did Jesus come to abolish the law? 
Have a look at the verse. Anyone want to give it a go? Any bold ones? Is that no, I'm not going to answer, or is that the answer? He has not come to abolish the law. That's right. Jesus has not come to abolish the law. He just said that. Now, let me ask all of you a slightly harder question, one that you don't need to answer out loud. If Jesus has not come to abolish the law, why does he seem to do pretty much that in the rest of chapter 5? No less than six times in this chapter does Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This passage is one of the most significant for the whole Sermon on the Mount, and indeed for a lot of uh, Scripture. And you can tell that even from the very beginning of the verse. It seems like Jesus is anticipating that people will accuse him of doing the very thing that he says he has not come to do. He's anticipating people to say, you're just, coming, you're just getting rid of all of our laws and traditions. So no, he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Makes sense. If he's going to be saying those things, it can sound a lot like he's trying to do away with the law. But as he says here, Jesus is not abolishing them. He is fulfilling them. And perhaps this sounds to you like he's playing a bit of a word game just so that he can get away with it, you know. But it's important to know that when Jesus says the law or the prophets here, he's not just referring to the Ten Commandments. He's not even referring to just the rest of the, the Mosaic law. And it's, you know, whatever it is, 613 laws. No, he's referring to all of the scriptures that were available at the time. What we now call the Old Testament. And this phrase was a common way of doing that, referring to them as the law and the prophets. Perhaps the clearest example of this is found in Luke 6, 16, where Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John. Notice what he's saying there. That whole period of time, which we call the Old Testament, happened until John. So Jesus is saying that he's not abolishing the whole Old Testament. He is not doing away with all that it reveals about God and all of its history that has happened through the nation of Israel and all the other characters within it. He's not abolishing that. He is fulfilling that. Now, the core meaning of the word fulfill is basically fill. It's the same word that you would use to describe somebody filling up a jar of water. And so you see, the Old Testament was an unfinished story. It was a jar half empty. By the end of it, you're left wondering, when is the promised Messiah King going to come? When would, will God's people inherit the land? When will the kingdom of God finally come? Imagine if you decided that you wanted a pool, but you also didn't want to pay someone else to build it. That sounds like me. So if you figure... You, you, you kind of figure, well, you know, I, I might as well just do this myself. Can't be that hard, right? It's just a hole in the ground with some water. So you, you spend weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years, you know, digging through hard rock and, and then laying concrete and sealing it all and doing the plumbing and building a deck and making the whole area really nice and thinking this is going to be amazing. And imagine getting to that final stage of just filling it with water and then thinking, actually... I think I'm happy with how it is. 
the whole point of doing all of that work would be wasted. It would be pointless. It would be unfinished. The whole purpose for which you did all of that would never come. That would be like the Old Testament without Jesus. And Matthew's been already telling us this. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. We've seen it along in this, all the way along in this series. You remember how many times he quotes the Old Testament and says, so that it would be fulfilled. And he relates it to Jesus' life. And so when we hear Jesus say in this verse that he has fulfilled the law and the prophets, we are already primed to know exactly what he means by that. He is the promised son of God. He is the one that the Old Testament anticipated, the Messiah king who will rule the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is showing that there is continuity between the Old Testament and himself. Jesus didn't just drop in on the world's timeline to start something with zero connection to anything that came before. No, he is completing the puzzle of the Old Testament. He's filling the gaps that were left by the Old Testament. That's why he can say he has not come to abolish it. His presence does not invalidate any of the Old Testament by one iota. And he goes even further in this affirmation in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. A few years ago, a megachurch pastor Andy Stanley got into a little bit of hot water for saying that as Christians, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The same way perhaps that you might unhitch a car from a trailer. Now, whether people understood him correctly or just wanted to lynch him, I'll leave that up to you. You can go and look that up. But even thinking charitably about what he was trying to say, I'm not sure how you can choose that word to describe our relationship to the Old Testament at all. Especially in light of this passage. Listen to how roundly and firmly Jesus confirms what is often called the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Plenary meaning full or whole. Its roots actually even have the similar root to the word for fulfill. It means that Scripture and not just some of it, not just parts of it, not just the bits that we like, are all breathed out by God. And Jesus says that not even the tiniest little stroke Something smaller than a letter, like the dot over a lowercase i. Jesus says every single stroke, even something like that, which you could leave out and you wouldn't even notice. Every single stroke, every single dot are breathed out by God. Jesus is so adamant about this that he says that the law will remain until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. And the Old Testament will remain until this age ends and until God completes his work. And in case you're wondering if Jesus has pivoted to go from talking about all of the Old Testament scriptures to now just talking about the commandments themselves, because, you know, he says law and not law and the prophets here. 
Well, actually, the term law on its own was also often used to refer to all the scriptures. John 10.34 is probably one of the best examples of this. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? But Jesus actually isn't quoting any law. He's quoting from Psalm 82.6. And so given the context, and because Jesus is referring to every stroke, it seems clear that he's talking about all of the scriptures when he says law. And that means that the Old Testament has enduring significance and enduring authority over our lives. That means we simply cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It is all God's word. Jesus goes into even more detail about what this means in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You notice the therefore? Because the law is of enduring significance and authority until the end of this age, then each of the specific commandments that are written in them still have value and authority. Okay, let me pause now. This is uh, starting to sound like that old Chase's skit where they took to the streets of the US and they asked why people don't obey different, you know, random Old Testament commandments. I don't know if you've seen that one. I've just explained it. That's what they do. For example, Deuteronomy 22.11, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Pretty sure most, if not all of us, are disobeying that right now. That's a good and it's a reasonable question, right? One that this passage makes sense of. Remember the context. Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He has closed the loops, he has filled the gaps, and he has completed the prophecies. He is the bringer of the new covenant, the one that will write the law of the hearts onto the hearts of God's people, the one who will take out their hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. He is the high priest of a better covenant, one that is not made with a nation of Israel, but with all who come to him in repentance and in faith. Jesus' point is that we may now, in light of his coming, obey the Old Testament laws as God intended us to. You see, the plan was never for the Old Testament to be able to stand as God's word on its own. God's verbal plenary inspiration did not stop at the end of Malachi 4. So when Jesus says that if anyone relaxes even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's not referring to the commandments as they applied only to ancient Israel in the promised land. Deuteronomy 22.11 applied to the people of Israel in a period of God's history that has ended in Jesus. And the rest of his ministry would point to how he fulfills all of Scripture. You see, Jesus knows what he's about to say in the rest of this sermon. He knows that his apostles will go on to teach and to write under the inspiration of God to fill the gaps in understanding, to make sense of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. 
That's why Paul would reveal in Romans and Galatians that if we rely on works of the law for salvation, then we're under a curse. That's why the author of Hebrews would show how the sacrificial system in Israel foreshadowed a better covenant and a sacrificial system that would replace it that depends on Christ. But none of those authors, not Jesus himself, would say that the Old Testament now has no authority or no significance for us. As a matter of fact, the opposite happens. These apostles, they quote the Old Testament as the basis of their teaching, as the reason why they can have confidence in what they are saying. Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, and eventual death and resurrection would fulfill the law. That's the point of what Jesus is saying here. And the whole section finishes with a truth that echoes Jesus' very first warning about salt losing its saltiness in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How could Jesus say this? This is a serious statement. I mean, we don't want to get this wrong, right? Entry into the kingdom of heaven is at stake. If we have any earthquakes bigger than the one that we had this week, you don't want to get the instructions wrong on how to survive one. You don't want to be found in the kitchen when you should be under a table. And to be clear, Jesus is talking about entry into the kingdom at the end of our lives. Remember, we've talked about how the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet. Jesus here is talking about entering it in the age to come. Matthew 7.21, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a very similar statement. But this time he's referring to people who've reached the end of their lives. And so that verse mirrors this one. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven will have lived a life of grace-driven righteousness. That will be the sign, that will be the evidence of one who has been saved. And crucial to this understanding, this verse, is what Jesus means by righteousness. How is it that our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? After all, they didn't relax the commandments. They, they actually tightened them to make them even harder to follow. But Jesus saw right through what they were trying to do. Remember the words that Brad read out earlier from Matthew 23. The woes that Jesus declared over the scribes and the Pharisees exposed their hypocrisy. You see, these guys wanted to have the appearance of righteousness. They did all of their deeds to be seen by others. They strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. They did not draw near to God in desperation and in poverty of spirit. The scribes and Pharisees just wanted to know where the line was so they could figure out how to keep it and still get what they wanted. Kids, it would be, it would be like your parents telling you, don't eat the ice cream in the freezer, Okay? And so you think, yep, I won't eat the ice cream in the freezer. What do you do? You, you take it out, you open it up, you put a few scoops into a bowl, and then you proceed to put spoonfuls into your mouth, which you then spit back into the ice cream tub. 
you technically not eaten the ice cream, right? But everyone knows you've missed the point. This is why Jesus can say what he said. The scribes and the Pharisees, they missed the point of the Old Testament law. And they will continue to miss it as Jesus unpacks it and fulfills it right in front of their eyes. Jesus is not abolishing the law, but helping them understand what it meant then and what it will mean now in him. So when Jesus and the apostles make it clear that the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ and in his once-for-all sacrifice and is therefore no longer needed, that is not an abolishing of the law. When the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8 says that the old covenant is obsolete, that is not an abolishing of the law. He's not saying that you can just rip that part out of your Bible. You don't need it anymore. No, he's showing you how Jesus completes the picture of the Old Testament by ushering in the new covenant. That's why he can say that not even the tiniest mark of the law will pass away. That's why he can say that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be those who do and teach the law and the least will be those who relax and teach others to do the same. That's why he can say that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because those who are in Christ will live according to the new covenant and with transformed and redeemed hearts. They will live according to the covenant which shows why the Old Testament laws are fulfilled in Christ and therefore no longer need to be obeyed. At least not all of them, some of them. And such hearts pursue righteousness, not out of obligation, or so they can say that they didn't cross the line. The, the, the kind of obedience, the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling for is not the kind that just says, show me the line and I'll just you know, try and get as close to it as I can. Jesus' disciples obey and pursue and hunger and thirst for righteousness out of love for Jesus. And so Jesus spells out what that righteousness looks like. You don't draw the line at murder. You draw it at anger in your heart. You don't draw the line at adultery. You draw it at lust in your heart. You don't draw the line at hating your enemy. You draw it at loving your enemy. Friends, this is good news. Because Jesus' call to righteousness is not about legalism. Nor does it undermine grace. Our righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by being stricter on the letter of the law. You don't beat the Pharisees by having less lustful or angry thoughts than them. No, our righteousness exceeds theirs because we turn to the one who fulfilled the law. And he now enables and shows us what righteous obedience looks like. By his spirit, we now pursue righteousness. In Christ's new covenant, the Holy Spirit has brought our hearts to life so that our obedience to God is as he intended. After all, what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. A summary of the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, we look to the Son who saved us and live lives of light by His grace. And one of the reasons our brains explode here is because of an often neglected doctrine of the Christian faith. And that is the doctrine of sanctification. And we talk about justification as imputed righteousness, as Josh mentioned earlier. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us by grace through faith. And that means that when we repent and we believe this good news, Christ's righteousness is counted as ours, our righteousness and our sinfulness is counted as His on the cross. That's what imputed means. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet turned to Christ or trusted in Him for salvation, this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Our sin condemns us before God. And the only way to be made right before Him is to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus so that He may stand in our place. Would you turn to Him today? I'd love to have a conversation with you about that after our time together this morning. But though that's the essence of following Christ, that's not all of it. Because once God has done that in a person's life, He then, by His Spirit and through our own striving, imparts righteousness to us. God's Spirit imparts greater obedience to Him and His law as we keep turning to Jesus. That is what the process of sanctification achieves. More imparted righteousness in our lives. And you can't have one without the other. Christ's imputed righteousness necessarily results in imparted righteousness. So you cannot say, just pray this prayer with me and then expect that person to go and live however they want to. I mentioned last week that J.C. Ryle would be quoted again. Here he is. The union with Christ, which produces no effect on heart and life, is a mere formal union which is worthless before God. The faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils. It is a dead faith because it is alone. It is not the gift of God. It is not the faith of God's elect. In short, where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. The two go together. You can't have one without the other. Love and marriage. Horse and carriage. Old Testament and New Testament. Justification and sanctification. Imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. These are all things that you cannot separate. They are all things that you cannot unhitch. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is inseparable from a righteous life that continues increasingly to grow in faithful obedience, in joyful obedience, in loving obedience. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope that doesn't strike fear in your heart, but rather spurs you on to see that the grace of God transforms our hearts to live to him. And even if you're thinking to yourself, but but where is the righteousness? I can't see it. Surrender that to Christ. Plead for his mercy. Remember that the sign of a hard heart is unrepentance. Turn from your sin. Gather together with brothers and sisters who will encourage you, who will build you up, who will help you to, to think and consider your own heart and your life's actions to point out to you where God's grace is at work in making you more righteous. Paul would write in his letter to the Romans, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In case you're wondering, the Greek word means end. And it was able to be used in the same way that we use it today. It can have a double meaning. It is the end of the law for righteousness. And Paul is saying, it is not the law that makes you righteous. But it is also what the law terminated in. Christ was the purpose, was the goal He was the end, the reason for its existence. Our righteous works don't save us. But the gospel saves us to righteousness. And so we live to see the righteous one and to desire to be like him. To have full hearts as we seek to obey the law as it has been fulfilled In Jesus. Will the world see our distinctiveness as his disciples? Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Amen.